I'd like them to welcome our first speaker, who is Laurel Hickson. Um, Laurel is a research fellow at the Oxford Institute of Population Aging, and she's got over two decades worth of experience um, in working in this field. Her particular interests are acute and long-term integrated care service delivery models um, and financing, so uh, through public sector and private sector models. So both very, very important areas for us to consider if we're thinking about old age psychiatry. I'm also particularly intrigued that she's also worked in the office of the president um, in, in America. So I think that sounds, sounds great. And I'm imagining all sorts of the West Wing um, <laughs> in all its glory and what you might have got up to there. I'll probably, probably just have, have to um, talk to you over coffee to find out about that. But you're very welcome. Um, so thank you. I'm interested that, that you started the um, introduction by I was saying, you know, I really like what I do. It's really interesting. And I think that that's a, it's an important message. Um, because I, I got into um, aging um, in 1983. And um, I really like what I do. I've, done, I've been able to do some really interesting things um, in the field. And so, um, uh, you know, to the extent that this is, this is a talk about opportunities, um, career opportunities, this is a, this is a good one. Um, so, as, as Charlotte said, I, um, I, I'm a research fellow here, and I've had academic appointments here in Australia and in the U.S., and about half of my time I've been in academia and half the time I've been in public policy, and which is, I think, a little bit more common in the U.S. than it is here and in Australia, because what happens, at least in, in my field, which is health policy, is that um, when a president comes in that has, um, as part of his, um, you know, what he wants to accomplish during his time as health reform, then all the people who've been sort of hiding away in think tanks and universities and so forth, we all come out and we work for the president and try and do, you know, try and work our magic. And then when it fails, which is what happened when I worked for President Clinton, is the health reform effort failed, and then we all go back into think tanks and academia and so forth. So, um, so with that, uh, the other thing is that I, I, I'd like to slightly change my topic from uh, challenges to challenges and opportunities, because I think that this field is wide open um, with, um, with opportunities. Not challenges always seems a little, little heavy to me. Um, first, I'd like to describe um, some of the demographic uh, measures that are commonly used, and then link them to specific policy challenge, public policy challenges. And I'm going to do this in both sort of a theoretical way, uh, because you know I think you need some grounding in people's beliefs and values in order to think about public policy, but I'd also like to give a really, a very concrete example, both from my interest, but uh, which sort of links into some of, the, um, some of the, the future speakers. And I'm gonna touch on um, three public policy areas, just really, really lightly, um, sort of once over lightly, uh, the, uh, that, are, that are common in this area. It's the future financing, of healthcare and the implications of an aging population on that. The future financing of pensions, also a big, uh, a big public policy area. And then labor force partic participation, both older people 
moving in and out of the workforce, but also the, um, the labor force issues around having sufficient numbers of people to take care of older people, so the care sector. And as an, sort of an overarching um, uh, theme um, or concern, I'd like, to, I'd like for us to think about um, all of this in the context of, um, of this social contract, this generational contract between workers and older people and how um, public policy is about figuring out ways to share um, the burdens um, uh, and, and, uh, and, the, and a nation's resources. I mean, I, I think that's really the, what all of this is about, um, ultimately. So let's start with the first measure of um, demographic change, life expectancy at age 65. So hooray, right? You know, fantastic. We've, um, in the last uh, 30 years, um, men live uh, five years longer, uh, women live four years longer, so now life expectancy is about 83 for men and 86 for women. Hooray, right? And it's so interesting that so much of this is, is not couched in hooray. Right? I mean, I think this is amazing that, that we've made this sort of progress, and this is just in the last 30 years, where we, you know, beyond a lot of the um, sort of uh, issues um, of the past. Uh, but, but again, you know, it doesn't always get met with that sort of hooray um, uh, response. So let's dig a little deeper. A little, let's look at a, 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 maybe a slightly more meaningful measure of um, demographic change. And that's um, that all of those extra years that we added, they're not always healthy years. And that's where the public policy challenges um, come in. So instead of hooray, it's more like mm, raw. Uh, we've, half of those years, um, half of those extra years actually aren't, aren't lived in, in good health, mental or, or physical health. So a lot of policy challenges around that. They, that after age 65, um, healthcare costs go up, uh, social care costs go up. Um, well, actually, there, the, um, I think it is important to say that what, actually what we we're doing is delaying those costs more than, than sort of having them, them go up. The scare, again, the scarcity of labor um, in the care sector, really important. And so the big public policy challenge, the big goal of public policy is um, to increase that, the share of those extra years that are lived in a healthy, uh, a healthy way. Third measure of demographic change is um, life expectancy after pensionable age. And pensionable age being a slightly more meaningful um, uh, term than age 65, because obviously age 65 is kind of a socially construct or a public policy constructed age. There's no reason why 65 is when people retire. So pensionable, pensionable age is a little bit more fluid and um, a little bit uh, more meaningful. So the challenge is when you think of it in the context of how many years are you going to live after you stop working um, has a lot of implications for um, the cost of pension systems. And I think this next point at the bottom is that uh, aging, aging is in a lot of ministers' portfolios. 
unlike um, other issues, say maybe education, which is fairly concentrated in one portfolio, age, aging crosses a lot of boundaries. And so I think it's really important to, um, while most of the challenges fall in health, um, labor, and pensions, that the aging population will, will show up in an awful lot of portfolios in Westminster. Now, the, um, those extra years, I think, is also really important to think about in, in a public policy um, way, is that not all of those years um, are, are healthy, and not everybody has the same sort of experience um, in, terms of their, um, in, in terms of their physical health after retirement. Uh, it's kind of a harsh way of putting it, but death is... Death is not uh, democratic. And so the physical health of someone, um, in probably in our, our sort of cohort, um, which would be the, a high-grade occupation, the physical health of one of us at 70 is, is approximately equal on average to the physical health of someone who's 62 um, at, um, at a low-grade occupation. In fact, in Australia, the differential between... Um, uh, sort of white Anglo um, older people and the Aboriginal population is is so endemic that the um, the uh, eligibility the eligibility age for benefits is actually 55 for Aboriginals instead of 65. They've just systematically, you know, said you can have benefits 10 years earlier um, than everybody else. These inequalities, you know, come from a lifetime of advantages, different differences in advantages um, and disadvantages from birth and death. And so sort of a really big public policy goal um, or a challenge um, is how do you redistribute resources at the end of life to make up for a lifetime of differences? That's a really, a really big picture sort of public policy goal. The fourth measure, which you probably... Uh, hear about a fair amount is this old age um, dependency ratio, um, and I think that it, you know again this sort of harkens back to that you, you know the earlier comment that I made about the generational contact and sharing the burden and resources. How do you how do you how do you work that out? And so what you see here is that um, this old age dependency ratio, which is basically a ratio of working people to people who are retired. You know, today, um, you've got 25 working people support, oh wait, excuse me. Um, anyway, the ratio is tw 25, um, whereas it's gonna go up 70% in 50 years. So a lot more burden on the working people to support, um, support old age. So part of this is, um, is really how to how to look at the pension systems and the um, and labor la labor regulations and labor practices to um, to either discourage or encourage people um, to be part of the workforce um, to stay in the workforce in, into older age. So this is the fourth measure, this old age dependency ratio that you see that you see quite a lot. And I actually think that 
as a measure, it's, um, you know, again, it's, 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 uh, it's really um, attached to this sort of burden of, of aging sort of discussion. That, you know, again, talking about this in terms of a burden, instead of hooray, we've got lots more people living, living um, to longer ages. It's the burden of workers and, and, and who they need to support. So it's sort of, a, um, it's sort of an alarmist um, uh, way of, of describing uh, demographic uh, change. And, and, and the other piece of this is that you, need to, you really need to think about the other way. It's not all about economic um, uh, formal employment. It's, it's about the, some of the non-economic transfers that occur in society. Grandparents taking care of their grandchildren. Um, other sort of meaningful and productive activities that older people are involved in. I'm sure the Emma will be talking, uh, or perhaps will be talking about that in the context of the Alzheimer's Association and the sort of volunteer efforts. Um, so this this uh, this burden, it, I don't think it, I I think it's more meaningful if you measure it not just in economic terms. Now there's. Um, so, so the public policy discussions are influenced um, by two things. First of all, it's like sort of what's on offer. What are the, what are the different uh, um, policy uh, changes and how, how they, um, uh, different options, how they play out, what their, what their impact is in terms of efficiency and effectiveness and targeting and, and, and so forth. Um, but, the, but the other thing that we, that I'd like to sort of gloss over kind of quickly is that there are beliefs that undergird these discussions and, um, and, the, and, and policy paradigms that do sort of drive the way people think about the public policy options. Now today, the sort of more popular policy paradigm is this active aging paradigm um, where, as it says here from the World Health Organization's definition, it's the process of you know, optimizing opportunities, right? It's a, it's a, it's a much more um, holistic, that, that aging is, is more than just uh, working and being economically um, productive. It's about, it's about enhancing quality of life. And it, I, probably one of the terms that you've heard or will hear is quality adjusted life years. You know, it's more than just about the economics of it. Um, and this, that policy, the active aging paradigm, has replaced the earlier um, paradigm, which is productive aging. Like, how, how, how much do you bring in terms of um, production to the, um, uh, to the, di the discussion here? Now, the um, you know, example of this sort of active aging versus um, productive aging paradigm played out um, in, you know, over the last uh, 60 years or so um, in the context of the labor shortages or, or just the labor dynamics in, in the UK. So one of the, you know, I think that um, one of the things that's raised is the question of whether or not old age is, is socially constructed. And, and, and here, um, the example that uh, seems quite relevant is in the 1950s, what happened is there was, there was a lot of labor shortages. And so the, um, 
the, there were a lot of government appeals to older people to, quote, not sink into premature old age. In other words, they're saying, please, we need you to stay in the labor market because there's a lot of shortages in the 1950s. By the 1970s, with rising unemployment, um, the, you know, the, the, the reverse um, happened. And there were all these appeals um, to people to retire, to free up good jobs. Uh, for younger people, and that's probably a slightly more familiar refrain to to you all is this idea of um, the you know the job release schemes uh, get out and make opportunities available to to younger people so so the you know what's interesting is that um, you know your experience with older age seems to be at least somewhat constructed by the needs of the environment. Do you, do you want me to work or do you not want me to work? Um, and, the, and the active aging paradigm sort of says, let's create choices. So people who do want to work, that the opportunities are there. Um, people who don't want to work, they'll, they won't fall into um, a, a situation where they, um, you know, where they're impoverished and without resources and so forth. So creating meaningful, um, meaningful activities for people outside of retirement and supporting them, um, but not treating them as a homogenous group. Um, the, the elderly, interestingly, you might, you might have a different perspective on that. As we start the day, perhaps by the end of the day, you'll realize how heterogeneous um, older people really are. Now, the, um, the other thing that will be discussed um, a bit more um, later in the, um, in the day is this notion that also that active aging cuts across a lot of, um, of interrelated policy areas. And I had sort of talked about health policy and um, social care policy and pension policy and, and so forth. But, um, the, but the, the important point is that if we really want to um, increase those extra years in terms of uh, increase the sort of good physical and mental health in those extra years, that you really need to look across a, a, quite a few boundaries, a lot of policy boundaries um, to, to, uh, to achieve that. And I'm going to elaborate that on that. And, um, in the next couple of slides. And this is sort of a, a topic that's sort of near and dear to my heart, is how um, hospitals and GP practices and nursing homes and community care, how those things work um, together, how the acute and the um, long-term care systems work together. Now, why do we, you know, why is there a, a push for this? Besides just demographics, um, the uh, chronic health conditions are becoming much more prevalent. Um, among, um, among the young and, and the old. So all these, um, you know, heart diseases, stroke, cancer, and so forth, are all much more prevalent. But what's really interesting about chronic disease, as opposed to the more acute types of diseases, is that these disabling conditions um, are, um, are much more, uh, the, out the, the outcomes of those conditions are much more dependent on the, uh, you know, sort of what's, what's around them. 
Um, so things like uh, vulnerability in terms of frailty, social isolation, mental, mental illness, and lots of other social advantages really exacerbate um, chronic care conditions. And so you can't really separately treat the chronic condition without looking at the context that it's occurring in. Um, so it's, a, a, again, this sort of, sort of the need for a more holistic um, view when you're looking at um, when you're looking at chronic conditions. And a lot has been written about, um, about acute and long-term care and how they don't work well together, how um, people are, are, uh, are left in hospital beds because it's hard to discharge them to care homes, uh, why people aren't getting the sort of care they need, some of the acute services they need in a care home wind up in hospitals, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and, you know, again, thinking about that active aging paradigm is that ultimately this journey, patient journey, um, what a lot of people now are talking, uh, talking about in the context of person-centeredness, um, is that uh, patients should be actively involved in their decisions and in their journey and in how as a chronic condition, as a person with a chronic condition, how, how, how this will play out. Um, this is especially true, I think, in end-of-life care. And, and too often, and these are some quotes that I had read from the, from the UK press about how the NHS um, operates, that it, revolve, that, care, that it revolves care around buildings or hysterical practice instead of people. And that's the sort of, sort of thing that really uh, um, bumps up against the idea of active aging and that patients also often fit their needs and lives around services on offer rather than experiencing flexible and responsive systems. So these are the sort of, sort of things that I, you know, I pulled out of the press um, about how the NHS works and how it's in conflict with um, integrating health and social care and doing this around the needs of, um, of the older person. Now, new, developing new care models, um, innovation, and so forth has dominated um, for decades the, the policy discourse in, in, in the UK. And, and I, I think it's quite interesting that the UK has taken this sort of let a, a hundred flowers bloom um, approach uh, because they realize that local context, um, uh, the, the talents of, the, ta the strengths and the weaknesses of local communities really matter a lot in trying to form um, and form new systems and that we really, we really haven't figured out quite, um, quite how to do this. And so built into a lot of the efforts, and particularly um, a relatively new effort um, in the UK that innovation pioneers built into that as a process for evaluating um, the outcomes and then communicating what works and what doesn't. Um, the communication strategy is very much a part of, of you know, these new, um, you know, 100, 100 flowers blooming uh, around the UK. But all of this, of course, the, um, the devil is in the details. That's, my, that's always been my favorite um, term in the context of, of health reform. You might have these great ideas, but 
operationally how they play out is really um, is really important here. So of course, near and dear to my heart, financing. How do you sort out the money? And um, and there's been a lot of discussion about pooling budgets, bringing together the acute um, or the health and the social care budgets um, at the level um, at the level of the community. Uh, quite a lot of counties are trying to do this because they see. Um, you know, two different systems with two different pots of money um, that are that are funded in really different ways. Whether they're local council taxes or coming from um, coming from the, the um, bigger uh, central government. Um, so, you know, getting the money right does involve as a force, first step putting the putting the money that a person is eligible for together into a single pot and trying to figure out what to do with that. But it's also really important to, um, to get the, the right incentives built into the way the money uh, flows out. And, and ultimately what you're trying to do is to provide for people the, the right services in the least, excuse me, least restrictive setting so it's sort of like the downward substitution of care, where you can take care of someone in the community, you should do that instead of having them go to a care home, where you can take care of somebody in a rehab unit instead of in a, in a um, more acute setting, you should try and do that. And, and to align the incentives, the financial incentives, in such a way that you can, that you can um, achieve those, those sorts of goals. And, and it's really important that the financing system uh, doesn't reward activities that may increase um, the incomes of the people, that, that, that you're not rewarded for providing more services, but instead you're rewarded for providing um, better outcomes. So one of the ways of doing this is, is um, through a capitated system. And uh, you know, I could spend the whole day uh, talking to you about the sort of the technical difficulties of, um, of setting capitation rates. But the, um, so that's sort of the first, the first level to me is getting, getting the money straight. The second is, is getting in place those mechanisms that help you integrate care. And those involve care management and, and also involve um, information systems. And there's a lot, again, this is another 100 um, flowers bloom sort of thing. There's a lot of care systems um, or care management systems and information systems that are there to support and to, to, help, um, to, to help bring together the care needs um, in a sort of person-centered way. But the um, couple of really important lessons to learn from, from decades of experience in these areas is that it's really hard to try and fund those mechanisms, to try and pay for those mechanisms with savings. Um, you really need to um, build into your reform money to buy an information system rather than saying we'll pay for it with the savings we get out of becoming more efficient and more um, effective uh, providers. So that's kind of like one key lesson from decades of experience in, um, in looking at uh, care management systems. The other, the sort of third 
key lesson um, that, that I would sort of put forth to the, the UK in terms of trying to get, get it right, get it at, at like a really practical level, get this pulling the systems of acute and um, social, health and social care together. And then first of all, not everybody needs care management. Not everybody, you know, uh, to, to have a case conference on someone whose needs are very simple is, is a waste of, of resources. What you, what you really need to do is try and target people with complex needs, um, people whose needs cross boundaries, cross settings. Um, a, a, a few of the uh, groups of people who uh, integrated care works best for or are uh, frail elderly, people who are eligible for nursing homes but we're, are in care homes but you're trying to keep, um, who you're trying to keep in the community. Um, HIV AIDS populations, their needs cross a lot of boundaries and, um, and those are sort of groups that would be targeted for this. In the UK there's been a lot of focus on um, specific diseases and creating care uh, pathways for specific diseases and, um, and sort of standardizing the way, the way care receives. Um, it's, a, it's a prescriptive, but it can be, you know, the checklist, I, you know, if anybody's read the um, Atul Gawande's checklist book, you know, it sort of speaks to that sort of thinking. Um, the problem, of course, is what happens when you have multiple conditions. So which pathway do you take or how do you, how do you merge pathways? Um, because often people do have more than um, more than one condition, and um, and in terms of getting it right, I, I also think um, again going back to the aligning the financial incentives, but also getting providers to be thinking about outcomes, not to be thinking about the process so much, but say, how am I going to keep someone out of the hospital? How am I going to keep a nursing home patient? out of the hospital. What, what's the best way to do that and how to get the money sort of lined up to, um, to achieve that sort, of, that sort of goal? And then this is the kind of the piece for, for you all is um, where do doctors uh, fit into this, this new, um, the, these new care models? This is sort of the fourth lesson, the take home lesson from um, some of my experiences looking at these issues in Australia. But in particular, um, uh, some of the efforts that have been um, that have been done in the um, in the U.S. and I spent quite a lot of time following a um, a model in the U.S. years uh, quite a few years ago, but a, a model that's actually ex expanded um, quite a lot. And it's really really important that doctors behave differently um, in in these sorts of models. And in the UK, this is probably less of an issue than in the US. I think doctors in general just are, um, in, in fact, <laughs> what's really interesting is that US is, is, in some of its more recent efforts, is trying to replicate what the UK already does, but to do it without having socialized medicine. So, but the culture change, this whole notion of working in a multidisciplinary, um, in a multidisciplinary team is really, really critical to the active aging, integrated care, all of these, all of these sort of big pictures 
that you're trying to achieve involves a lot of behavior change and, um, and working together in teams and respecting the, um, that when you're sitting around the table, and, and one of, actually one of the exa great example in this, um, this uh, model in San Francisco's Chinatown is that they would have at the, ta the care conference table, they would have the doctors and the nurses and the um, therapists, but they would also have um, someone who represented the transportation um, people, the, the people who brought, brought the older people into this day health center. And um, of course, this is San Francisco's Chinatown, and some of these older people were quite small and would live in walk-ups, like would live on you know, a fourth floor walk-up, and, and, and some of the transportation drivers would literally pick them up, pick up the elderly and take them down the stairs and put them in the transport to take, bring them into the day health center. And those transportation workers, those drivers, uh, could tell you um, a lot about that person just by picking them up. So here you are at a case conference and they'd say, and you know, transportation, what can you say about Mrs. X? And they, they could actually have really meaningful input um, into she seemed more or she seemed less or I, you know, when I, I looked at her house and it wasn't clean and it was always clean before and so forth. So, so as a doctor, sort of valuing the input of, of other disciplines is a really critical piece, a really critical lesson here. And, and, and again, I, um, I'm, gonna, I'm sort of, sort of going to leave you with, with a, a quote from, from a paper. This is from, this is 1994, and it is in the US, so, um, or it's based on US doctors. But I think it's worth, um, it's worth you know, just pulling out as, a, as a closing words, is that, um, uh, you know, a lot of physicians are are uncomfortable not being the the preeminent or the dominant voice at the table, um, and that uh, um, sorry, sorry, but extra deference is not paid to their rank, which is what we wrote. And I do think that this is much more of a U.S. phenomenon than here. But the but the notion of of um, them being able to be members of a multidisciplinary team and to not be, um, and to not, uh, and to have the sort of characteristics that that requires in terms of um, uh, controlling resources and, 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 and let it, letting the sort of financial incentives um, be part of the way they, they make decisions is, is, um, is really critical in terms of forming these teams. Um, those sort of characteristics are really, are really key and things that you should um, kind of keep in the back of your head as you're, as you're making decisions about moving into this area. So with that, turn it over. Back to Charlotte. Thank you. I think it's very interesting what you're saying about integrated care and the role of the multidisciplinary team because I think that's something that in psychiatry, especially old age psychiatry, we really hold dear to the core of our practice. So I think um, in terms of psychiatry the, and the integration agenda, I hope that we're slightly ahead of the curve compared to some other more traditional specialties.
I think what your talk leads very nicely on to, to Chris's talk, who, who's coming next. Um, so you talked about integrated care and the need for services to be flexible and responsive. And I think you also, with your sort of speaking about the finances and the other elements, touched on how political this area is and how there are so many people who've got a stake in deciding how integration should happen and what is the best thing. 